Christianity is an other world religion with a present world application. Christianity is not made by men. It is God's idea. But it's not the kind of faith, as we've been saying, that causes us to live as if this world doesn't matter. It is faith that matters both for life and eternity. And so if it's true that Christianity is an other world religion with real world application and implication, then we would expect it to show up in our relationships. And we would expect it to show up, in fact, to be most necessary in our relationships, in our lives, where our relationships are most broken and most challenging. This past week has been an interesting and a troubling week for many people. This week we saw the officer who shot and killed Philando Castile acquitted of second-degree murder by a jury in, in Minneapolis. The decision prompted a conservative columnist, David French, to write in a national review that this is basically a miscarriage of justice. The jury in the Bill Cosby sexual assault and rape case ended in a deadlock and a mistrial this week. And one famous actress and writer wrote, Bill Cosby's trial is about much more than Bill Cosby. When women see justice served, their own fear and trauma are eased. When they don't, survivors of sexual assault have to watch every day as the legal system calls them liars and denies their truth. It is an unimaginable grind. My heart is with every survivor reliving the erasure of their own experience today. In the same week, the country marked the two-year anniversary of the shooting of nine Christian brothers and sisters at their prayer meeting in Charleston, South Carolina, by a man who, on his social media account, said he was intending to start a race war. The architect of the 9-11 memorial pledged that he would design a memorial to commemorate the lives of these nine persons killed. Reverend Clementa Pinckney, 41, Cynthia Hurd, 54, Sharonda Coleman Singleton, 45, Tywanza Sanders, 26, Ethel Lance, 70, Susan Jackson, 87, DePayne Middleton Doctor, 49, Daniel Simmons, 74, and Myra Thompson, 59. Meanwhile, the Southern Baptist Convention, of which we are part, passed a resolution condemning alt-right and white supremacist ideology. The resolution reads, in part, resolved that the messengers to the Southern Baptist Convention meeting in Phoenix, Arizona, June 13, 14, 2017, decry every form of racism including alt-right white supremacy as antithetical to the gospel of Jesus Christ, and be it further resolved that we denounce and repudiate white supremacy in every form of racial and ethnic hatred as of the devil, and be it further resolved that we acknowledge that we still must make progress in rooting out any remaining forms of intentional or unintentional racism in our midst, and be it further resolved that we earnestly pray both for those who advocate racist ideologies and those who are thereby deceived that they may see their error through the light of the gospel 
repent of these hatreds and come to know the peace and love of Christ through redeemed fellowship in the kingdom of God, which is established from every nation, tribe, people, and language. And the church said, Amen. If you follow the SBC meeting, then you know the Resolutions Committee refused to present an earlier version of the resolution that was, in its preamble, less self-congratulatory and more pointed about the rise of white supremacist organizations, philosophy, and activity. It's been an interesting week. What do these things have in common? From the Cosby trial to the Castillo shooting, to the SBC convention? Anything? Well, I suppose we could point to a lot of things. But what they all miss or could have missed is what all Christian, Christian churches are supposed to have. Virtue. Divine virtue. The moral character needed to face everything from sexual assaults against women to police stops gone wrong to the rise of hate groups, the moral character needed to resist those things ought to be found in copious amount in God's people. Every generation needs the Christian church to be the witness to virtue and morality that it ought to be. And without the church living this way, there's very little hope that our communities and agencies will ever reflect the values of God's kingdom. So for that hope to exist, the Christian church must live a thoroughly Christian life and witness. And a thoroughly Christian life and witness is made up of four things according to Colossians 3, 12 to 17. Four things. Number one, it's made up first of all of remembering who we are in Christ. Remembering who we are in Christ. We'll see that in verse 12. Number two, it is made up of putting on Christ. Putting on Christ. Verses 12 to 14. Number three, a, a thoroughgoing Christian witness requires also that we submit to Christ. That we submit to Christ. Verses 15 and 16. And finally, verse 17, that we work for Christ. That we work for Christ. Remember who we are, put on Christ, submit to Christ, then work for Christ, for the glory of Christ. Colossians 3, verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, 
giving thanks to God the Father through him. Well, we should start the sermon where Paul starts the sermon. You remember the flow of ideas in Colossians chapter 3. Paul begins in verse 1 of chapter 3 by saying that we have died with Christ or have been raised with Christ. He says that's true in verse 3 because we have died with Christ. And not only have we died and been raised with Christ, but in verse 3 he says that we are hidden with Christ in God. There's that great doctrine of our union with Christ, that the one who believes in Christ is joined to him in a spiritual union. Paul says it has certain implications. So verse 5, therefore, put to death what is earthly in you. And he goes on to list a a catalog of sins in verse 5 and again down around verses 8 and 9. And so he says, now, if we really are united with Christ, then we must put some things to death. And and he, he tells us in verse 11 that that produces a certain kind of community. Verses 9 and 10, he begins to use his image of of dressing and undressing. We're to take off the old man and to put on the new man who's being renewed in in knowledge in the image of its creator. And, And that new man is Christ. And Christ creates in himself a new community marked by verse 11 where there's neither, um, Greek nor Jew, where there's neither, um, What's the rest there? Uh, Circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free. Rather, Christ is all and in all. The Lord Jesus has purposed to produce in himself this community of radical, fundamental equality across all these natural distinctions because he is all and in all and we are in him. So verses 5 to 11 gives us kind of the negative side of the coin, the things to put to death. Verses 12 to 17, thinking about this community in verse 11, gives us the positive side of the community, the things to put on. But Paul wants us to remember now that we are fundamentally united with Christ. And so he begins in verse 12 by telling us who we are. You see how it breaks into his thinking there? He says, put on then, and he thinks about it, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. And if you're a Christian here this morning, those are three things, those are three facts that are true about you. That number one, you are God's chosen one. Ephesians 1 verse 4 tells us that before the foundation of the world, God chose you in Christ. It isn't merely that we chose Christ, but he chose us. It isn't merely that we love Christ, but he first loved us. Before the worlds began, beloved, God set his love upon you. And in his love said, I will have this one to be mine. Ephesians 1 verses 4 and 5 go on and tell us that the reason that he has loved us this way is that he has predestined us to be uh, um, um, holy in his son. And that's the second thing that Paul tells us here in verse 12. We're not only God's chosen ones, but we are holy. Did you know that that's a fact about you, Christian? You are holy. And you say, Pastor, you, you don't know what I was thinking about last night. No, I don't. I don't want to. You are holy. You're holy precisely because you are united with Christ. This is your position. Now, I know that there's a process, too, of growing in holiness, but we are set apart. We are laid aside. We are are owned and saved by God for God. And because we are in Christ, everything that Christ is is also in us. All the holiness you will ever need to see God, you have through Christ your Savior. 
And so you're set apart for God. And not only that, you see it there again, you're beloved. You're the beloved of God. You are the apple of God's eye. His banner over you is love. He exults over you with singing because of his love for you. Now, beloved, these are facts, not commands. These are statements, not instructions. These are things that are true of you already, not things that you have to produce. These are things that are true of you by virtue of the fact that you are united with Christ and, and he, is, he is in you and you are in him. These are not things that you have to work for. These are things that you work from. These are not things that you have to earn. These are things that God has given to you in Christ. This is who you are. This is who I am. This is what the Christian church is. The chosen ones of God, holy and beloved. And and this is similar language to the same language that God uses in Deuteronomy chapter 7 when he speaks there of his Old Testament people. He picks up that same language, and it's interesting to see how often the Bible does this. It picks up the same language spoken of Israel and uses it with regard to the church. And this is why I was considering a Bible study last Thursday night uh, where Paul says there in Galatians that the church is the Israel of God. Hear the words of Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 to 8. You can turn there with me if you like, or, or you can write down and look at it later. This is God speaking to his old covenant people, and these are words meant for us. He says, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Doesn't that sound a whole lot like God's chosen ones, holy and beloved? Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all the peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you. Isn't that remarkable? It's circular, really. God loves you because he loves you. And because he loves you, he loves you. That's good news. Because nothing can break that circle. And there's no other basis on which God builds his love other than the fact that he has chosen to love us. And if he has chosen to love us, then what does he tell us in the scripture? Nothing will separate us from his love, which is in Christ Jesus. It's good. (laughs) That's who we are. Now, here's the thing, beloved. Here's the application from this first point. Since God sees you that way and sees me this way, sees his church that way, we should work to see ourselves that way. We should let his perspective of us determine our perspective of us. We should let his assessment of us in Christ determine our assessment of ourselves in Christ. This is the root of Christian assurance. This is how you can be sure Because God who does not lie and promises and keeps his word said, you are my chosen ones, holy and beloved. And because he says it, it's true. And because it's true, it's ours to delight in. There's nothing for you to do, only to accept that God loves you and has chosen you and has set you apart as his special possession, holy 
for his use. Now, I don't mind, beloved, if you go to sleep right now and enjoy that fact about your life if you're a Christian. If you're not yet a Christian, don't go to sleep. You need to hear how that becomes true of you. But notice where Paul starts with the church. Verse 12, he starts with this reminder of who you are, and we need to remember who we are. Then he goes, number two, to this, this, really, this metaphor where we are told to put on Christ. To put on Christ. You see it there in verse 12? And verse 12 and verse 14 together kind of tell us there are two layers of clothing, if you will, that we are to put on. The first are those five virtues that Paul lists in, in verse 12. Now, notice these virtues are really kind of the opposite of those things we were to take off around verses 8 and 9. Remember where Paul said that we were to put to death anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk? Well, here now he gives us some virtues that are the mirror opposite, things that we are to dress ourselves in. And the first is compassion. A more literal translation of that word, and it might have this in the King James, would be bowels of mercy. In our day, when we think of something that really is genuine, we say it's heartfelt. And so you may have a translation that says heartfelt mercy or heartfelt compassion. In the ancient days, the, the center of the soul, where all the emotions were thought to come from, were a little bit lower than the heart. It was in the bowels. And so here when it says the bowels of mercy, what he's saying basically is from the deep central part of yourself, let there be a tender-hearted compassion, a care and a concern for others in the midst of their difficulty. And then he says, now you put on compassion, but along with that, put on kindness. And we know what kindness is, don't we? It is goodness shown to another, oftentimes when they don't deserve it, isn't it? And so he says, add to your compassion, kindness or goodness and add to your goodness, humility, put on humility. We are called to dress ourselves in a, a godly lowliness. We're not to be puffed up or proud. That's the opposite of humility. We're not to engage in a, in a false humility either. So there are two errors that we can make. So you remember back in Colossians chapter 2, verse 18, Paul talked about those false teachers who were insisting upon asceticism, asceticism and the worship of angels. That, that asceticism there was a false humility shown in religious display. So we don't want either the false humility of, of what was going on in Colossians or the pride, the, the opposite of humility, but we want a, a true, accurate assessment of ourselves. We are creatures. That means we're dependent upon God. And we are sinners. That means we need grace. And so we want to be sort of tempered by that kind of lowliness. Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. That's the idea here with his humility. And then we must dress in meekness. Now meekness does not mean weakness. Meekness is a combination of power and gentleness. That's why you might have a translation that says gentleness there. The meek person is, is not impressed with their own importance and strength. Instead of responding to people with anger, 
or malice, the things we saw earlier in the chapter, the meek person, even though they have the power to respond in force, they rather respond in the kind of gentleness that we've talked about. The meek person lives between two extremes of always and easily getting angry and never being able to be angry. They respond to situations at the appropriate measure, at the appropriate time, with the right kind of reaction. It's power under control. And then next, the Christian, the Christian church must dress itself in patience. Patience. You know what that is. It's the thing you like when your babies are crying. Right? It's the thing you like at work when the coworkers getting on your nerves. Right? The word could be translated long-suffering. The patient person has the ability to, to bear up under the, the weight or the pressure of, of difficult persons and difficult circumstances. Patient people endure without haste, without anger, without discouragement. This is how we'd address, beloved. This is the first layer of clothing that's appropriate for who we are as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. These are the virtues that Christ produces through us as he lives in us. But now there's another layer of clothing to put on. That's what we see in verse 14. We're not completely dressed until we put on the outer garments. It's like a man who uh, puts on a tuxedo to go to a, a formal affair. He may look very nice in his black slacks and white press shirt and, and bow tie, but he ain't finished yet, is he, till he put the jacket on. You know, and he know it too, because he'd be in the window and he shrugged just like that. He'd pull it on. And he knows, okay, the thing now is complete. The whole outfit is pulled together. And that's the virtue we're given in verse 14. Notice there, above all these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. See, love is the virtue above all the other virtues. Love is the chief of the virtues, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And, and without love, no other virtue or act of Christian service counts for anything. Without love, 1 Corinthians 13 tells us, we're nothing. We're just loud instruments clanging in everybody's ears. And so love is above all these things. But notice also, love binds all these things together in harmony or unity. Love's the jacket that pulls, it, that pulls it together. Love is what makes it possible for us to be meek. Love is what makes it possible for us to be patient. Love is what makes it possible for, not, for us to not play patience against kindness or kindness against compassion, but to bring them together into a whole and to walk them out in completion. I love the way theologian Doug Moo puts it. He says, um, virtues attain their full power only when they are unified by and empowered by love. That's what Paul has in mind in verse 14. But here's the thing about this metaphor of putting on, of getting dressed. You guys know when you put on clothes for the first time or you get dressed in the morning, there are two things that you're thinking about generally. How do I look and how does this feel on me? right? How do I look and how does, this, how does this feel? Well, now he gives us the look and the feel of this clothing in verse 13. The look of these clothes, notice, uh, is in the second part of verse 13, where Paul says, if one has a complaint against another, forgive each other. 
as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. So when you ask yourself the question, what is uh, compassion and kindness and humility and meekness and patience and love look like? Very practically, in the Christian community, it looks like forgiving each other. That's how it shows up. That's what you look like when you're in the mirror. Like you're about to forgive somebody. Right? Or like you're about to ask for some forgiveness. Because we're going to be on either hand of that. Right? And notice the standard of forgiveness here. He says, as the Lord Jesus Christ has forgiven us, so we must forgive each other. It's not some light sort of uh, easy peasy forgiveness here. Right? So how did the Lord forgive us? Well, Jesus forgave us all of our sins, great ones and small ones. He did not leave a single sin of yours or mine unforgiven or unatoned for. When he died on the cross, he died for all sins of all people, past, present, and future. And God forgives them all when we come to Jesus in faith. And, and, and Jesus, notice how he forgives us. He forgives us not only completely, but he also forgives us at great cost. The cost of our forgiveness is the shedding of the blood of the Son of God. Your forgiveness can't be purchased with silver or gold. Your, your forgiveness and my forgiveness can't be bargained for. Your, your debt of, of sin cannot be worked off with good works. The only thing that buys us back from our sin is the precious blood of the Son of God. It cost him his life. And beloved, there are going to be times where forgiving others will very nearly, if not actually, cost us our lives. We are called to forgive the way Jesus has forgiven us. And how else did he forgive us? He forgave us freely. He didn't require us to atone for ourselves. He didn't require us to make some kind of payment for our sin. He granted it to us. He gave it to us. He offers it to us freely. And my friend, if you're here and you're not yet a Christian, this is the part of the message you really want to hold on to. Christ died on the cross in your place to pay the penalty that you deserve for your sins. The Father's wrath was satisfied completely on him. That means he took your judgment. And three days later, God raised him from the grave to prove that he accepted Jesus' sacrifice in your place. And now that costly forgiveness, that free forgiveness, that complete forgiveness, which Jesus has purchased for sinners, is offered to you. Receive it. Repent of sin and trust in Jesus as your Lord. And enter his community, his body, to live out the gospel the way it's instructed here. If you want to know more about how to do that, see me after the service or speak with a Christian friend who brought you or the family member. We'd like nothing more than to help you understand that God's love is free. That he offers it to you in Christ. And that you may have it if you believe and trust in Jesus. That's the feel. That's the look. It looks like forgiveness. Well, what does it feel like? This new set of clothes that we've been called to put on, all these virtues in Christ. Well, that's what Paul tells us in the first half of verse 13. You see it there where he says, bearing with one another? That's what it feels like to put on with Christ. It feels like bearing with, or if you want to translate it more commonly, putting up with. 
It looks like putting up with each other. It feels that way. Now, here's what you know. Just to hear it said that way, we got to put up with each other. That don't sound pleasant, do it? Some things that you put on, some new clothes that you wear, feel stiff when you put them on. They feel a little tight when you put them on. And putting on Christ feels a little tight. As the preachers say, it's tight, but it's right. (laughs) And so this tightness here called bearing with one another is what we're called to as a congregation. That stress, that weight of being aggravated by someone else, inconvenienced by someone else. It's not something we are allowed to respond to with anger, wrath, malice, slander, or obscene talk. But we're called to respond to with compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, and love. Now, it would be humble of us to realize that each one of us is somebody that somebody else got to put up with. Uh-huh, I caught you, didn't I? Because you were thinking you just had to put up with somebody else, right? And, and that's how we all are in our self-centeredness. We read the Bible and we're the heroes, right? It's like, okay, okay, Jesus, I hear you. I, okay, I'm going to put up with Matt. I'm going to endure Matt, you know, and when Jeremy starts talking about the Cavaliers, I'm, I'm just going to deal with it, right? You know. But no, you that buster that need to be put up with too. This is a community project. And we need each other to be bearing with one another and forgiving one another if we're going to be the one new man that Jesus has called us to be. Let me put it another way. Christian community is only possible when Christian virtue leads us to bear with one another. Every time a relationship is broken, doesn't matter whether it's a marriage or a friendship or church membership, every time a relationship is broken, somebody somewhere failed at this practice of bearing with one another. Well, sometimes there's reason. But all the time, someone decided they couldn't put up with it anymore. Let me apply this to our church family. Push it down a little further here. I praise God for the way this church family, ARC, has, has, has learned to bear with each other coming through last year's election. I know, he's like, oh, pastor, don't mention that. <laughs> but I want to encourage you in this. I want to encourage you in this. I saw it very clearly during the election season. And I'll be honest, I've never seen a cultural event outside the church create as much suspicion inside the church as this past election. I've never seen something out in the world make Christians who had been worshiping together for some time then begin to look at each other with suspicion. Besides this election. Ne- never seen that before. And, and not only did it create that kind of general suspicion, but, you know, folks came to church and they, they wondered to themselves, I wonder who they voted for. All right. And some of those folks came into our assembly. I'm talking about our family, not just abstractly now, beloved. This is, at, this is where the rubber meets the road. This is at home. Some folks came into the assembly hoping, I hope they don't think I voted for that person. And the suspicion would go so far as to cause some of us who have covenanted together, believing that we have by God's grace been saved and made into a community, to question whether or not 
that person we're suspicious of is even a Christian if they voted the way I suspect they voted. It ran deep, beloved. And we were scared to be suspected that we might actually hold the values of that candidate, whichever the candidate was. That having voted whichever way we voted meant that we actually were secretly harboring the same kinds of feelings and ideas in our hearts. It was threatening to the fabric of every diverse church I know. Every pastor I spoke with, folks who I interacted with online, they were all struggling with this suspicion. But I saw people at ARC through tears and frustration and fear and disappointment and anger and doubt. I saw you bear with each other. I saw you take the load on your shoulders and continue in patience and meekness and kindness. I saw you increasing in humility and I saw love winning. You don't know, if you want to know what bearing with one another looks like in our family, it feels like, I'd encourage you to think about how we've continued to be a church family even when threatened by something like the election. And that gets played out on smaller individual levels on other topics. This is what we're called to. But the real test of these virtues, if I can push it down a little bit further, is seen in how we treat the least among us. If I understand Luke chapter 10 correctly, the parable of the Good Samaritan, if I understand James chapter 2 correctly, if I understand Romans 14 and 15 correctly, if I understand Jesus when he says, when you did this unto the least of these, then you did it unto me, that the real test of these virtues is not seen by how we treat wealthy, strong, affluent, privileged people. The real test of these virtues is seen in how we treat poor, despised, mocked, alienated people. The least of these. You see, Jesus teaches us, he says, listen, it's no great thing if you do favors for people who can repay you. That may just be self-interest. But go out and gather those who cannot repay you. Invite them to the feast. Those who have no money, have no home, can, can sort of create no advantage for you. It's when you show this kind of virtue to people who otherwise can't do anything for you. Oh, that's when the virtue is coming through most clearly and most compellingly according to our Lord. So it's when we show this to the least of these. When people wish to know if their lives matter, for example. How does compassion and kindness and humility and meekness and patience and love reply? But people wish to know if their lives matter, do these kind of virtues right away start to say, what about these other lives? Do these virtues answer by interrogating the person who's wondering about the value of their lives, whether or not they are, are worthy of, say, protections and justice? I think all of these virtues at least implicitly teach that every life matters. From the womb to the tomb, of every color and every vocation, 
If every life did not matter, then we would not be called to life-preserving virtues like compassion and kindness, meekness, humility, patience, and forgiveness. All of those virtues have this thing in common. Not only do they come from God, but because they come from God, they are life-giving and life-sustaining, not life-robbing. Imagine that you had a sign that says, blank life matters. Then fill in the blank with every adjective you can think of and practice these virtues toward that every adjective or now. But when you type, when you put a type of life in that blank, don't then play the value of that life against the value of another type of life. The sentence stands on its own. The principle is true as a principle. Whatever life you put in it, unborn life matters. Black life matters. White life matters. Blue life, if you will, matters. There's not a life on the planet that does not matter. But here's the thing, beloved. For the Christian dressed in Christ, yes, life matters, period. All life matters, period. Every life matters, period. But it's most important to apply these virtues where any kind of life is threatened, marginalized, or oppressed. So if we're going to put on Christ, we're going to have to walk this out thoroughly and widely on all the issues of our day so that we become a compelling community that's an alternative community to the rest of the world. So God calls us to put on Christ, but then he tells us now to submit to Christ. We see that in verses 15 and 16. And once we put on Christ, then we must submit to him. So verse 15 says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which you were indeed called in one body. Verse 16 goes on, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. I call this, this point to submit to Christ because the text moves from the active verb put on in verse 12 and 14 to the passive verb let in verses 15 and 16. We are to let or to yield or to allow Christ to rule in our hearts. The peace of Christ, the rule in our hearts, the word of Christ to dwell richly among us. And those two things are related. We have peace with Christ ruling in our hearts to the extent that the word of Christ is dwelling richly in our hearts. The more we store God's word in our hearts, the more we experience Christ's peaceful rule in our church. That's one good reason for reading your, your Bibles every day reading them for a long time. That's one good reason for memorizing God's word together as a, as a church, because we are storing God's word in our hearts with the hope that that word would produce, as it promises, the peace of God in our community, in our souls. And this peace should rule the entire church. Notice, this is not something we experience only individually, but see the second half of verse 15? to which you were called in one body. The vision here is for the entire church. 
as the body of Christ to experience this. So I take that to mean it's not enough that a few of us experience the peace of Christ. Or that even the slight majority of us do. I take that to mean that one goal and one ambition for us as a church family is that increasingly all of us experience the peace of Christ ruling in our hearts as one body, as Christ's body. And this peace is precious. So Ephesians chapter 4 verse 3 says, do everything to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So not only are we bearing with one another, but we are positively acting and doing everything within our ability to preserve this peace which we have in Christ. Keeping our eye on the fact, Ephesians chapter 2 verse 14, that he himself is our peace. Likewise, the word of Christ should dwell richly in the entire body of Christ. One commentator says, the phrase dwell richly invites us to become soaked saturated and marinated in the word of Christ from the inside. And here's the striking thing about that text. Notice, we need each other for this. Notice what verse 16 says. Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So the the word of Christ dwells in the church as the church does three things. As it teaches, which means instructs, as it admonishes, which means warns, and as it sings the word of Christ. As we teach and instruct each other and sing to each other, God's word lives in us. Particularly if we are, as we endeavor to be, a church that reads the Bible, prays the Bible, preaches the Bible, and sings the Bible. By that activity, putting the gospel central, God builds a community made up by the gospel. That's why that's our first M. If you're new to this church, we have five M's that are kind of our objectives as a church. And the first one is the spreading of the message of the gospel. We want everything we do to be centered on the good news of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice for our sins and his resurrection from the dead. That's the message that gives us life. And that's the message that gives us peace. And so we we need each other. We do this, notice, one to the other. And there's some implications for this. Number one, that means that the teaching ministry of the church is not limited to the preaching ministry of the church. Uh, Preaching is central. But you should be gossiping the gospel with each other. You should be speaking of Jesus, not just when we gather on Sundays, but Monday through Saturdays, in small group, in personal fellowship, in the workplace, wherever you go. People should not be able to come around us. This is our hope, right? That people can't come around us without bumping into the word of Jesus. We wish to be, as Charles Spurgeon said, uh, of of, um, the man who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan. That his blood was biblene. That if you cut him anywhere, he'd bleed the Bible. That's what we wish to be. Biblene in that way. Bleeding the Bible. Right? And, and we, we need each other for, to do that. For, for, the, for the word to soak us. To dwell in us richly. Beloved, we can't have a Sunday morning only faith. Because here's what I know. I, my sermons are average at best. They'll get you to Sunday evening, but they won't get you through Monday. You're going to need to keep pouring the word of God into your life. And we're going to need to keep speaking it to each other 
for it to dwell richly among us. We want to be gospel people in that way. And this strikes against something else in our culture and in the church culture. As this, as this text teaches us that we need each other, it, it very simply tells us that Christianity stands against spiritual individualism. The kind of rugged individualism that we prize in this culture that sometimes creates a lone ranger Christianity is contrary to the Bible. Listen, beloved, you can be an introvert and a Christian as I am, but you can't be a healthy Christian and isolate yourself. Those are not the same things. We're called into one body to live together under this peace that comes from the word of Christ. Individualism weakens the Christian community by by separating us from one another, by, by making us strangers to each other when we should be close family. It weakens the entire church from the, from the inside by, by pulling out necessary members of the body. And I wonder, beloved, if you think like me, it may be that the church's witness to the world is weakened to the extent that the church allows worldly individualism to dominate its view of the Christian life. You see, if the Christian life is only about you and your quiet times and your personal walk with Jesus, we're so many fireflies in a dark universe. But if the Christian life is about you loving Jesus and walking with Jesus in the fellowship of God's people, that's how we become a city set on a hill. That's how we become a light and a lighthouse to a perishing world. Uh, individualism just robs us of that collective opportunity to bear witness to Christ and to bear witness to Christ in a tangible way as we practice these virtues with each other and as we teach each other God's word, singing and teaching and admonishing. Think about it. Why does the church not give the world a more compelling picture of compassion? I mean, could it be that the church isn't together enough to practice compassion with each other, much less with the loss. Well, why does the church not show the world a stronger community than the community that's offered to young men by gangs, for example, or social organizations? Could it be we're so individualistic that we don't bear with one another and forgive one another, and therefore the love of Christ isn't seen as clearly with each other as it could be? Could it be the church's response to social injustice is warped by an overly individualistic emphasis? So that no matter how many times unarmed African Americans, for example, are shot by police officers, and then the policemen are acquitted, we can only see individual instances and never a pattern because of that individualistic assumption. We're like people standing in a thick forest saying tree, 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 and never stopping to say, wait a minute, is, am I in a forest? Or no matter how many women line up to accuse a man of sexual assault, we're in danger of seeing only his individual celebrity and looking at them and asking questions about their individual character, all the while implicitly or explicitly blaming them for something we should be blaming him about. And so we put their pain on trial 
and never recognized a broader cultural pattern of shaming and blaming and mistreating women. Could that be because even in the church we're too individualistic in our worldview? If we don't put on Christ, notice, as a community, and if we don't submit to Christ as a community, it will be difficult for us then as a community to effectively engage or witness to the larger communities around us. But everything that we're being called to here, we're being called to in one body as God's chosen people, holy and beloved. Which brings us to our final point. Verse 17, we are to then work for Christ. Verses 12 to 16 lead logically to verse 17. If we are God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, and if we put on Christ as our virtue or character, and if we submit to Christ as Lord, then it makes sense that, as verse 17 says, whatever we do in word or deed, we are to do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the Father through him. What does this mean? Well, this means that we are to work for Christ. Or to put it another way, our entire lives are lives of worship. Worship is not what we do Sunday morning. Worship is what we do with our entire life. The word worship in the Bible is never used in the New Testament of the Sunday morning gathering. It's used as it is in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, of our lives. So Romans 12, 1 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices. And then it explains, holy and acceptable God, which is your spiritual worship. It's to give up the entire self to Christ as holy, set apart for him, as acceptable because of what Christ has done for us and yielding the entire life to his service. Again, as one writer puts it, Christianity is not a hobby. It is what we do with our whole lives. What you say to your neighbor after church as you go out today or when you go home will be an act of worship. What we eat will be an act of worship. That next purchasing decision will be an act of worship. Whether or not we demonstrate compassion to that broken person we see later this week is an act of worship. We will either do it, as the text says here, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, which means in agreement with Jesus' own character and under his authority, or we will do it in our name or some other name, in which case what should have been worship will be blasphemy. If Christ has purchased you with his blood, he owns you, and your whole life is yielded up to him. And I want us to see in this text as we close the attitude with which we give ourselves to Christ. It's been running through the text. I wonder if you saw the repeated mention of thankfulness. You see it in verse 15 at the end? And be thankful. You see it there in verse 16? We are singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. The Christian community ought to be a thankful community. So we come to verse 17 and we read in verse 17 that we do everything in the name of the Lord, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Every true gospel community ought to be a thanksgiving community. That's why lifeless singing is such a joke. And that's why as you were singing this morning and you saying, look what he's done for me. 
and you sang Great Is Our Thankfulness, and by the time you got to Oh How I Love Jesus, you were feeling it, weren't you? Thanksgiving rising in the soul. That's how we ought to sing to God with hearts full of gratitude. Whether it's the opening preparation music or whether it's the final hymn after the communion or the sermon or, or whether we're in our car driving to work or at home cleaning the house with Christian radio on, our hearts are to be blaring thanksgiving through whatever lyrics we're actually singing. Yeah, Making melody in our hearts. We will never have peace as a church family if we're not thankful to God for Christ. You can be sure that people who are habitually unhappy with their churches are also habitually unthankful or in, in grateful, ungrateful. What's the word? You know the word. They're not giving thanks. You can be sure of it, beloved. And, and that's why many people find it impossible to bear with one another. They are not thankful. Dissatisfaction of heart leads to dissatisfaction with people. And in extreme, extreme cases, ingratitude leads to dissatisfaction with Christ. But this I know. I always have a reason to be thankful. I always have a reason to be thankful. You see, beloved, I should have been going to hell, but I ain't. I should have been condemned with the worst of sinners, but I ain't. I should be suffering God's judgment for all of eternity, but I ain't. My, my life should be broken in a thousand pieces from unfaithfulness and, and sin and, and distraction and, and all kinds of things. But by God's grace in Jesus Christ, I ain't. I should be alone because I'm a, I'm a mean old guy left to myself. But, but by God's grace, he's given me a family. I should be burdened under the weight of my sin. But Christ put him on his shoulders. And he died for him in my place. And whatever else is happening, hell has been robbed of the beating soul. The enemy has been defeated on my behalf and your behalf if you are Christ. If nothing else is true of you today, if you are a Christian, you should be grateful because hell is not your home. Heaven is. Heaven is. And so we remember who we are. God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. And we put on Christ and we submit to his lordship and we work for him because we're grateful for what he's done for us. Let's pray together. Oh God, look what you have done for such miserable sinners as us. Look what you have done. You redeemed us with the blood of your son. We were lost in dead and sin. But Jesus came for us. Oh Lord, we marvel at what you have done. You have adopted us in your love. Before the foundation of the world, you loved us. We were orphans without hope. But now we're your children. Oh God, what more can you do for us to make us happy, to make us joyful? You have given us Christ, your son. He is ours and we are his forever. And now nothing will separate us from your love. No one can pluck us from your hands. You've began the work in us and you will complete it. And on the day of Christ, 
we will appear in his glory with him. Look what you have done. Make our hearts thankful as we live Christian lives bearing witness to Christ, growing as a community in the virtue of Christ, putting him on, walking out the gospel, demonstrating the transformative power of your love. We're weak, but you're powerful. We're small, but you're great. Do exceedingly abundantly above all we could ask or think in our lives, individually and collectively, and in this community that you've called us to. We ask this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.